It's the first Monday of the month, and we are responding to your questions on coaching, work-life balance, and aligning values with your organization. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 252. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show will give you access to the best thinkers, resources, and actions to help you develop your leadership skills. And I'm so glad you've joined us for our monthly Q&A show airing the first Monday of every month. And if you'd like to have your question considered for a future Q&A episode, go to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. I have with me Bonnie Stahoviak for helping respond to questions today. And this is only our third take of starting this show. So hopefully we'll, hopefully we'll be rolling from this point forward. Hello, Bonnie. Hello. I'm, we hardly ever have to do a retake. So for every once in a while, we're going to have a fit of giggles. That's probably a good sign. That, exactly. We've been married 11 years now, I think. You're a one-take wonder, my friend. Well, You are very good on your it's feet. It's good that we still make each other laugh. We do make each other laugh. And speaking of of laughter, well, I don't know. Maybe it's not a good transition to speaking of laughter, but I am hosting a meetup this week <laughs> in Chicago. Hopefully we'll laugh. There will be some laughter between me and Beth Bilo, who is also co-hosting the meetup. If you're in the Chicago area, we'd love to meet you this week. If you're listening, it's going to be Thursday, July 7th, 2016. Go to coachingforleaders.com slash Chicago if you'd like to learn about that. And there's still time to sign up and join us downtown Chicago the evening of the 7th. Perhaps now that Congress knows how to use the Periscope app, you know, you and Beth Below can hop on Periscope and do it live and people can join you from all over the world, including our congressional representatives. No, I don't think I'm going to be getting on Periscope. No. There's just there's just too many things in life to... I have had people ask on the show of, of doing the live video broadcast. I don't know. There's just too many things in life to focus on. I'm try and get this. I'm try and get this audio podcast thing down. Yeah. We're we're approaching five years now, and I think I'm just at the point of approaching some level of mediocrity slash good on some parts of this. I so, am pretty good at multitasking when using technology for things like if I'm delivering online synchronous classes or something like that, I can usually keep my eyes pretty well peeled on the peeled Pe- ears get peeled. Eyes are peeled. Something's peeled on the chat, <laughs> the chat box. But I'll tell you that Periscope thing, those things just fly by, especially if you're Cory Booker. Yeah, it's pretty cool technology. I don't know. I'm kind of an introvert and I'm pretty sure Beth Bilo is an introvert since she's written the introvert entrepreneur book. I don't know. Us introverts live, live streaming in a park on Periscope. It's not, not really our thing. Well. Yeah. So anyway, who knows? <laughs> Let's go to the first question here, though. We have a whole bunch of questions today, as I mentioned in the intro. Our first question here is from Chase. Chase writes in and says, I'm wondering about coaching someone who has inherited a job that pushes them beyond their skill set, specifically someone who was focused solely on a job, specifically training tellers. Uh, that function moved from HR to ops. HR retained the former teller trainer uh, for a corporate training role. The employee's wheelhouse is black and white training, ops and compliance focused. Now the employee's focus is more on ambiguous training around developing staff on a variety of skill sets. It's challenging for her. I struggle coaching her because her natural drive and skill set is very operations focused. Any advice 
on some coaching on this topic would be much appreciated. So I'll let Bonnie uh, start on this one. One of the first things that I ever learned when I began pursuing education around leadership is about our tendencies to focus either more on relationships or more on tasks. And of course, there have been many, many different leadership theorists who have looked at a lot of different models about leadership, but that's kind of one of the first ones that you'll learn when you start looking at the literature is just that there's this continuum and we might just have a natural default setting toward as we're engaged in projects and and the dynamics in a workplace, we might be more attuned to things having to do with the relationships or more attuned to things having to do with the tasks. And of course, anytime we take a model like this, one of the downsides is we can oversimplify people. This week, I listened to a fascinating podcast episode by the people who do the podcast called Invisibilia. And Invisibilia is about the forces that are happening around us that we cannot see. And this particular episode was about personality. And I don't want to give too much away and I can't even do justice to the brilliant podcast that they produced. But basically, it kind of put into question everything that we've ever heard or learned about personality. So certainly, we should know as managers, as leaders, that we can't just put you in a box and say, Dave, you focus more on task or Dave, you focus more on relationship. Our dynamics with how we will present ourselves and work are far more complicated than that. I will tell you, though, it is helpful for me to think about these as possible paradigms that people either might really be able to leverage as strengths or that people might really have as something that holds them back. The ideal, of course, would be that we weren't stuck in our default setting, if you will, but that we were able to adapt given the situation. And one of the things I would think about is that it's it's pretty hard if you put someone who's very, very process-oriented and ask them to teach something that is not process-oriented. It's really hard for people to wrap their head around that, and particularly if there's no desire to do that. I was doing some coaching recently and one of the supporting characters in this coaching relationship that I have, I noted very task oriented. In fact, she said many times I'm task oriented, like to get things done. And it was nice for me to know that about her because I didn't have to then be offended when some people might've seen some of the responses that she had as curt, but I knew this person's very task oriented. And this person is thinking about the giant stack of things this particular day that she needs to get done before she leaves. Not going to be the best time to engage around the relational side of her work as it related to the person that I was working with. So I think conversations with this person that you're coaching, we can't coach someone if there's no desire for change on the other person's part. So I'd be wanting to explore to what degree does she view a need for change? I don't think we ever said she was a she, did we? My mm. Oh, yes. I struggle coaching. Yeah. I was making sure I wasn't being blatantly sexist. Okay. Whew, whew. <laughs> Sometimes you, you wonder how something popped into your head and this popped into my head because you said she. There you go. Uh, we'd want to talk to her about what has she noticed about the differences between the work that she'd been asked to do before and the work she's being asked to do now. Are there areas where she sees herself having a challenge would there be things that she might like to develop areas? And because once we know someone has a desire to change, 
then there's an open door to talk about what coaching might look like. If there is absolutely no desire, then the conversations really need to look to short-term and long-term what that's really going to look like. I would like to really have a candid conversation if they had absolutely no desire. If they had no awareness, we can still have a conversation and then look for opportunities to bring this up more in the future. But if there's an awareness somewhat, but it's I'm right and everyone else in the world is wrong that has more of an orientation toward relationship, then it's going to be a little bit of a problem. And I would like to have had those conversations that, gosh, this is what we're looking for in this job. This is what the job really requires, that sort of thing. So that ultimately, if the conversation needs to be, there just isn't a fit here. There are no surprises along the way. And we can have had lots of conversations. I don't mean that we instantly, the first five minutes we sit down together, say, oh, you're not going to work here anymore. If this doesn't get shipped, you know, shaped up right away, that, that would not be at all what I mean. But just regular conversations about observations that I had been making. And of course, observations are always much better when we can make them behaviorally. So I don't ever say you have a bad attitude. I say, I noticed that you walked out of the meeting and slammed the door behind you. We talk about behaviors. We don't talk about the words. I mean, they're just, they just cause people to be far more defensive if we come up with words that can be construed in a lot of different ways. I was going to add something here and it completely went out of my head. Hmm. So I guess it must not have been that important, but I like what you said um, about the whole thing. So I, maybe it'll come back to me later and what are the other go. questions. Yeah. So let's move on to our next question. Thanks so much, by the way, uh, Chase, for sending in that question. Bonnie, I'll let you read the next one. I have an M- MSC in Environment and Sustainable Development. And although I do some studies and recommendations on sustainable cities, the reality is that most developers don't care about the environment. And sometimes I feel like I'm missing my ideals. Other team members agree with me. Moreover, when environmental issues are at risk, sometimes I feel uncomfortable because my beliefs and because of my beliefs and the developers' expectations. I don't know how much I can stand of this incongruence, but is it something unusual in the workplace? Is it common that you find that you don't agree with the position of the company you work with? Sometimes this position might only be recognized once you're working within the company. Yes is the answer on the question, is it common you disagree with something about your employer and organization? I don't think I've ever been affiliated with an organization where I didn't have some disagreement or some thing that I held indifferent as far as a value that the organization held, at least on something. It may not have been a lot of things, and hopefully it's not a lot of things, and I don't think it's ever been a lot of things, but there's always something that isn't quite in alignment. And so when I think about your question, Diana, I I wonder if there's a distinction we could draw and you could consider between people not caring about the environment and perhaps that just not being very high on their priority list. My experience has been, even in industries and working with clients that don't traditionally maybe think about things like the environment, is that people care about the environment. They don't want to do anything to harm the environment. It's just not on their list of like the top business priorities that they're thinking about. And they're very focused on results and numbers. And sometimes that tie-in isn't there for seeing how the environmental concerns may fit in with that. So one thing I'd encourage you to do is to see, is there a place where you could draw that distinction? And is there a way to reframe some of that as just how 
they may be looking at the issue and looking at things from their perspective. So one uh, past episode I'd certainly recommend uh, specifically for you, Diana, to go back and listen to would be episode number 96. It's called How to Get Buy-In for a New Initiative. My friend Christina Call Martins was on that show, and she put together a, a major environmental initiative at a Fortune 500 company that's not traditionally thinking about environmental concerns, at least wasn't in the past. And her work, along with the work of many, many people in the organization, really changed a lot of the actions, the behaviors, and ultimately the value that the organization placed on commitment to the environment. And that episode would really be an interesting one, I think, for you to listen to, even though it's from a while ago, because the way that she approached it initially and the people on her team who were very concerned about this is they met the organization where the organization was at the time, which is looking very much at the business results and the numbers and cost and affordability and all the things that were already very important to the organization. And then she and her team brought along and looked at where are the places where we can both be good stewards of environmental activities and at the same time drive very clear connection to what we are going to do for the environment and the bottom line for the organization. And they were very intentional about doing that. And they had a lot of small wins that they did along the way. And as that picked up steam and as the business results came in that supported the environmental efforts that they were producing, not only did they get more traction for the work they were doing, but the cool thing is, is the culture of the organization and the value of the organization started to change. Now, if you went to that organization today and said, you know, what's our number one most important thing we're concerned about? I don't think environmental would probably be the number one thing on the list, but it's easily on the top five or six today because of the commitment that a small team of people made to do that. And so I'd encourage you to really take a look at reframing in that way of how do you how do you find something that you or your organization could do, or at least get a few people involved in your organization that could start to align with some of the business needs of the organization too? And the other thing that I'd add in here is, let's say you went to an organization that was perfectly in alignment with your values on this. That's a very comfortable place to be, but you wouldn't potentially offer as much value as you may in this position. So as challenging as I know it is to be in a situation where you don't align on a, something that's important to you with the organization's value, or at least it doesn't feel that way, you have the opportunity to potentially affect a lot of change here, Diana. And so I'd really encourage you to look at this as an opportunity of what are some small things you could do that really do potentially change the culture of the organization and make a real difference in an organization that might not otherwise do it if you weren't there. And so it's a big value you could add, not only for your own career and for the organization, but for the environment too. So I really, uh, I'm excited for where you are. And, and I, don't, I don't mean to trivialize it. I mean, it's easy for me to say that sitting here, you know, there are times absolutely that we're out of alignment with the values of an organization. And that's, you know, that's too far apart where we're not going to find alignment. But this strikes me just the way you ask this is a place potentially where you can find that. I hope you'll check out episode 96. So I think it'll inspire you to look for some, uh, some good ways to do that. So with that said, thanks for the question, Diane. Let's go ahead and move to the next question. And this one comes in as an audio question from Charlie. Hi, Dave. It's uh, John Douglas from the UK here. I'd like any suggestions you or the community might have for coaching members of your team who have blind spots around the need to 
develop within their job who may think that they're great. Why would I need to look at my development because I can do it all? And who may be quite resistant when you do give them um, positive but constructive feedback on, on, on ways that you'd like to see them develop. That's, uh, that's it. I look forward to hearing from you and your community. Hey, Charlie, thanks a ton for the question. And actually, this relates a little bit to the first question here from Chase, I think. And I wanted to zero in on something you mentioned in the question. Of course, there's so many different ways we could go with this. And so I'd love to have a chat with you on uh, on what some of the specifics are. But one of the things I was zeroing in from your question is positive yet constructive feedback. And so one of the things that I'd be curious about is it sounds like there's not an awareness to get to what Bonnie was talking about earlier of perhaps some of the job requirements and the performance standards that need to happen and people assuming that they are meeting those or at least believing they're meeting those. But it sounds like your perspective is probably different than that on some of these areas. And so as a starting point, are the expectations clear? So is it apparent if if we were to go and to ask the people that you're thinking about, what are the expectations for performance and the metrics for the specific things that you're thinking about and the skill sets and the numbers and the customer data? Do they know that and are they able to articulate that? If they can't, then that's a starting point for the conversation is making sure that those expectations are clear. The other thing that I'm thinking about in just the context of how you asked this question, and I don't know if this is true for you, Charlie, but it is true for many leaders. And so I, I'm going to mention it here because I think this is something for all of us to check ourselves on whenever we're giving feedback, is you mentioned positive and constructive feedback or positive but constructive feedback. And I do think, and I've observed many times over the years, there is the tendency when someone isn't hitting a performance standard or is very much not in alignment with what the organization needs from them or their their job performance in a particular area, there's a tendency to do the sandwich method, which a lot of us learned and unfortunately is just not very effective. And it's, I think it stinks, <laughs> frankly, is uh, say something positive, then give the person the constructive criticism and then say something positive at the end. So that's where, why it's called the sandwich method. And uh, it, it tends to, in practice, dilute the message that oftentimes people need to hear, which is you're not hitting the standard in this particular area because it tends to come off as a, oh, you're doing most of the things fairly well and there's this one thing that you need to do better. If someone is not hitting 80% of the performance standards in the job, the conversation should be 80% on how do you hit the, you know, you're not hitting the performance standards and how can we get you back to that? So I think you can be encouraging and even kind and yet very direct about if the standards aren't being met, let's we need to work on how we're going to get you back to that point. And so if you frame the conversation around what are the what are the standards that need to be hit and then how are we going to work to get you back there and being very frank and 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 direct with people when they're not hitting that, I think that that's an important starting point for how you move forward in that situation. Bonnie, anything you want like to add on that? As Dave said, this really can depend on the extent to which someone's meeting the expectations of the job. What you call blind spots, it's hard for Dave and I to know just exactly what are we talking about here. Let's use Dave as an example. So Dave has this podcast. It's called Coaching for Leaders. Let's assume 
or I'm going to say assume it's not true, by the way, but let's assume that he worked for me and let's assume that I was paying him to do the job of, of getting a podcast out once a week and his listener numbers have been going up and he's had now many times publishers will send books to him of really big name authors and say, hey, could you put this person on your show? I mean, for all intensive purposes, this is a successful podcast and that's what I've hired him to do. If he doesn't really want to come to me and say, how could I get better at doing my podcast? What kinds of things should I change? To me as a manager, if he's doing the essential function of the job and he's been meeting the goals, in fact, exceeding the goals, congratulations, Dave, then it's, in fact, we do this. I mean, he doesn't work for me. I don't work for him, but with each other's podcasts, we do give each other feedback, but I can't actually ever think of a time that we did that when it wasn't asked for. I mean, we, we might say, wow, I loved that show. That was really a cool episode. And that was not something that, what did you think of the episode? I mean, we, so we give positive feedback, but I can't remember a time ever that we went to the other person and said, you know, I want to talk to you. I, I, I'm sure maybe it's happened, but it's certainly not something that we habitually do because that, I mean, it's, you're successful at meeting whatever the goals are. And, and to, to me, that would be like, why would you point out a blind spot? Because is it really a blind spot? Or is it one of the things where the person's really strong in an area? And when we're really strong in an area, it's really hard for us to be strong in the opposite of that area. Like we were talking about with the earlier question, if I'm super good at relationships, I'm probably not going to be a rock star at tasks. I'm probably not going to be rock star relationship person and rock star tasks. I'm not saying I've never met people who were, but I do notice we we tend to lean toward more. It's great when we can build the flexibility to do both, as I said earlier. But if what you're talking about of blind spots are gaping holes, (laughs) gaping holes that really are performance issues that someone is both blind to or just not willing to have conversations around, then I have got a recommendation of all recommendations for you. And that is a book called Analyzing Performance Problems. I believe we've talked about it on the show, but it's been a long time by a couple of authors, Robert Mager and Peter Pipe. And the book walks through exactly when somebody is not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And in fact, it's, it's, it's a very short book. It's, I don't even think it cracks a hundred pages. If I recall, very thin, easy to read book, easy to digest. And the end of it is a checklist that you can kind of walk through a flow chart says, have you talked to the person? Have you identified, is it affecting the job? How big is it? I mean, and and you can just walk through the whole thing because a lot of times what people tend to go to is either training or you phrased it as coaching. Coaching and training, those are things that only work if the person actually is aware that they're not where they want to be and they don't want to be where they are. They want to make a change. Giving someone training who doesn't want to change, trying to coach them, what you're doing is not coaching if the person has not embraced the fact that they really want to change and are excited about seeing some of the benefits that that change would bring. And so it's just a wonderful resource. I, I in fact, have the book on my bookshelf and reference it regularly. And I also ordered, they have something like 20 packs of uh, printed on a little bit thicker paper where you can distribute the flow chart out to other managers in your company. And I have ordered those for workshops that I've delivered before because it's just a really great sort of job aid, they would call the, that a great job aid to have around for thinking through when you do have some performance problems. I'm so glad you mentioned that because that book is worth the price just to get that flowchart. 
And I think the first thing on that flowchart is one of the first things I said, which is, are the expectations clear? And interestingly, to your point, Bonnie, I think the last thing on the flowchart is training. That's the last mm-hmm. intervention you go to. And there's probably 10 or 15 things between those two that you'd want to be thinking of, at least have thought through of, have we done this first before we start going through and do all these interventions around training or coaching or whatever it may be. So, so definitely, definitely check that out. I'm glad you mentioned that. Great suggestion. Our next question is another audio one from Rasmus. Hi, Dave. My name is Rasmus. I'm recording this from Finland. I started listening to this podcast maybe a month ago when I had moved and I have almost one hour and 50 minutes drive to my school. So I wanted to do something productive with that time. So I started listening to your podcast because I almost spent two and a half hours in my car every day. I'm currently studying to become, I'm getting my bachelor grade almost done this year. And then I'm becoming, after that, I'm starting with my master's studies in becoming a teacher. So I was really wondering how to combine family life with all of that. I got a three-month-old daughter, and the only time I have on the evenings is almost that when she's gone to sleep, and then I have to start doing schoolwork and everything. And it's hard combining everything with motivation when you need to rest and so on. So I was wondering if you can give me any concrete tips how to manage everyday life and also keep, keep up with the family life and get everything done to school and how to keep up the motivation and so on. So I was wondering if we could get any concrete tips on how to keep the motivation going and how to combine everything. Because often on when you have that time on the evening, you don't really want to spend them on schoolwork, but you have to do it. So I was wondering how to get everything done. And I also, once more, thank you real much for this podcast. It's giving me a lot and I'm really looking forward to every episode. Erasmus, thank you so much for your question. I resonated with it a ton. Like you, Bonnie and I actually both have done school in the evening and been working full time uh, at points for years, actually, in both of our careers. So we've we've been there and and having small children, we think a lot about this as far as life balance. And um, a couple of things uh, that that we do, and I'm sure Bonnie will have some thoughts here too. One is I try to give myself a lot of grace on any given day. I'm out of balance always, so it's a matter of. Not so much, am I going to get out of balance? It's how quickly can I come back to it and center myself? There are days where work takes over. There are days when I spend lots of time on family things and maybe, you know, I should have worked a little more. So I think that for me is I don't, I try to give myself a lot of grace on when I fall out of balance of just, just doing the, okay, I'm out of balance at this moment or this day or this week. And how can I come back to being in balance? And I think a lot about quality versus quantity. And it is interesting. I've seen a ton of articles recently on um, some of the more recent studies. You know, I, those of us who are parents of young kids, we, we want to spend as much time as we can with our children, of course. And it's interesting that some of the studies are starting to show now that when you, the longitudinal studies, that when you look at how much time parents spend with kids over the long term, it's, it's, it's less about the quantity and more about the quality of those interactions and that they're are many examples of parents who don't have as much time, but because those interactions are so quality that kids grow up having wonderful skills and wonderful doing wonderful things about the world. So I, uh, on weeks that I'm really busy with work, I, I try to remember that it doesn't, it, what I do on any particular day isn't so important as to the long-term trajectory. Now, on more of a strategy standpoint, 
one thing that I've started to do, Rasmus, is, um, and I've talked on the show before how I do annual planning. I've actually broken that down. One of our mastermind members started to do quarterly planning around goals uh, earlier this year. And that really was attractive to me. I found that that has resonated with me a lot. And so I'm actually doing that right now of setting goals for my work over the next two to three months, but I'm also setting goals personally. And so, for example, uh, one of the things that was on my list is having time for our kids to go to the beach with us this summer. And so we set a date last Saturday and we all blocked the day and we went to the beach and it was fabulous and we had a great time. And our kids talked about it a couple of days in advance and they're still talking about it. So finding the thing that you can do and making that time in the midst of school and all the things that you're doing um, is to find that one or two things that you can commit to is is key. And it's been key for me as far as just having something to zero in on. Bonnie, what resonates with you on this? One of the things that Dave did not mention is that we never did school while having a three-month-old. <laughs> that is true. I mean, I, I suppose in many ways you could say that Dave and I are still in school because while we are not writing as many papers. We are often either grading papers or in Dave's case, he doesn't do as much grading, but does a lot of teaching. So teaching is kind of like being a student in many ways. So there's, there's a similarity there, but not, not, I mean, three months old. One thing I just think is really important to recognize is how physically grueling that part of your child's life is especially if you are being a true partner in terms of parenting and that sort of thing, because there certainly are some times where families might have more traditional gender roles. And in that case, one of the members of the partnership might be more of the sense of the provider kind of thing. And, and for me, my life is so much richer because Dave and I are partners because we do share those parenting things. And, and that was very different from how I grew up when, when I grew up, my dad was very much the provider. And I treasure the fact that he did that. I don't, I don't have bitterness toward him. I just find marriage and being a mother so much richer because I do have a partner. I would, I think I would feel lonely if I was trying to mother two small children alone. I think that would be really lonely. And I know many people do that. Many people today are alone, either because of more traditional gender roles or because they truly are alone and they are a single parent and don't don't have that opportunity to have a partnership. So three months old, physically grueling. And one of the things that I always laugh because we, I wish I could go back and be a parent to just one newborn, knowing what I know about newborns now and three months old. <laughs> so one thing is they're not, I mean, yes, they wake up all the time. So physically it's exhausting if you're being some kind of a partner and making sure they get fed the however many hours in between. But that part does go by relatively fast. And then, but they, you can take them to a, a coffee shop and be doing some reading and they can be sitting there looking at a rattle for like half an, half an hour. They don't do that as they get larger. They do not stare and play with rattles for 30 minutes at a time while you get some reading done. But I was so attentive to every little noise that would come out of the child's mouth. And, and that definitely changed by necessity by the time our second child came around. And so I always wish, you know, if I, if I, if I could only go back, I think I would have been so much better yeah. at balancing everything because they, the physical part gets easier. And as we hear, I mean, I think Dave and I are still in the big stretch of the physically hard part. I lay down most times that I am 
physically exhausted from from that but the, it apparently just gets emotionally harder after that too so it's kind of a I, I went to see a therapist about a year ago to just help me process some change I was dealing with in a situation at the time. And by the way, going to a therapist, I think, is a wonderful thing to do and, and a good check-in at different points in your life, if not regularly, at least occasionally. And I remember her telling me, Bonnie, you know her too, that she said, you know, we, we weren't ta- there talking about family stuff, but it was a tangential thing that came up in the conversation. She says, just remember how hard this stage of life is when your kids are age zero to three or four or five. She's like, that's a really, 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 really difficult time. And it's a season. But remember that that's a hard time. And you're not supposed to feel like you have control over everything. You're not supposed to feel like you're well-rested every moment. And I do think about that often, Bonnie. And and that does give me peace on some days where I'm like, okay, this is a season. <laughs> we don't have it all figured out. And it comes along with the beautiful joy of having kids too. But yeah, so I don't know if we helped you, Rasmus, but hopefully this gives you gives you some thinking on um, on just some ways that we, we think about balance. And, and the other thing I'll mention too, I think we've mentioned this on the show, we both sit down once a week and we talk through our calendars. We balance out our schedule. We look a week ahead as far as what's going on for both of us. And that time is really, sometimes it's only a half hour, but just talking through what's going on in the next week is really helpful for both of us just to get on the same page. And if we have a tough week coming, at least we know that in advance, we can do some things proactively to work around it. And if you and your family are able to do that, or even if you do that for yourself, I think you'll find that that will help make that path go a lot smoother. Having a good set of tools is helpful. So making sure you've got a great task management system. Dave and I use one on the Mac that's called OmniFocus, but there are a ton of them out there and a bunch I would recommend depending on your style. We need that tool to know what our tasks are. And then specifically with school, you need a really good tool to keep track of all of your research. I see a lot of people who don't have the tools set up and go and try to write long papers and that sort of thing without having a good way of taking the sources that you're reading through and tracking them somewhere, taking notes, highlighting, whatever that is. Having a good references manager will be really important to you as well. And hey, little plug for my podcast. I have a podcast called Teaching in Higher Ed, but many people are listening who teach at all levels of education and would love to have you listen to that if you're interested on your long commute in the car. Might be another good one for you to check out. Awesome. Thanks so much, Rasmus, for the question. Let us know what you decide to do. And I think we've got time for one final question, Bonnie, and it is from Joe. So here's Joe. Hi, Dave. My name's Joe from Australia, and I'm a, a, in the process of starting a leadership consulting business. And I would like to find out from your point of view if there's anything that you recommend that I should know or do before I launch this company that I'm starting. I've been told by a lot of people that I work with and socialize around that I sh- shouldn't be wasting my skills um, working for someone else, that I should start my own business and do this for a living. So this is my chance to go for it and see if I can keep my head above the water. Um, also, I'd just like to say thank you very much for uh, providing this podcast and the weekly emails and the information. I, I do appreciate it massively, so thank you very much for that. And I hope to hear from your reply. Thank you. Hey, Joe, thanks a ton for the question. And it reminds me of a uh, an action I took, uh, I don't know, 
15, 16, 17 years ago, I was working for a company and thought I would start a coaching business, coaching and speaking and uh, doing some of the things I'm, I'm doing today. And my plan at the time was just to leave my position and to jump right into it. And that's exactly what I did. And I found out very quickly that although I was very passionate about the work not only did I not have the right experience level to do the things that uh, would help me be successful doing that, uh, but I didn't really know that much about marketing and business and all of the work that was going to go into finding clients. And I have certainly seen this many times with people who are interested in this field as far as leadership and coaching and consulting is that they do have a very a great expertise in the particular area that they're in. But they haven't had a lot of experience, even if they have a lot of knowledge around running a business. And so I don't know if that's the case for you or not, because I don't know your background and your skill set. But either way, another way to look at this and the way I wish I had looked at it at the time, although I learned a ton from the experience, so I I value that a, a tremendous amount and has informed a lot of my decisions in my career since then. But the way that you could look at this is rather than jumping ship, which you didn't necessarily say, but your question sort of makes me think like maybe you're going to leave and start your own business. What if you started by just taking on a project or taking on a client? And I don't know what it's like in Australia, but here in the States, at least, I think back 10, 15, 20 years ago, and it was very much the culture of our business community that if you were moonlighting or doing something on the side that was kind of frowned upon by a lot of organizations, and there are still organizations that frown upon that, but more often than not, I I found it more the norm these days that a lot of people and a lot of organizations are doing a side project or uh, or doing something off hours or have flexible schedules and have the ability to, to, to try something out. I'd encourage that if you can. Because it's way less risky. You will make mistakes as you start off, uh, as I did when I started the Coaching for Leaders project, and still do, of course. But but the the big mistakes you're going to make early on. And so if you can make your mistakes early on, learn from that, get some experience while you still have the income coming in from the job you know well and probably can can do very successfully that's a huge plus for you. And I would encourage you to check out two resources as well that go along with that. One is a book called The Lean Startup by Eric Ries. I read it in the past, and it's really informed a lot of my thinking just on not only business, but doing a lot of things new or differently. And one of the things, the concepts he zeroes in on in that book is the importance of having a minimum viable product, of starting with something that's You've got a baseline service or a product you provide, and then doing what you need to do to offer value for your clients, and then to get it out there and to start getting feedback from people and not to do something in isolation. And I found that to be really helpful with a lot of the projects that I've approached is just to get out there and do it. Now, the book is geared toward the entrepreneurial technology folks, but I found so many parallels for so many different businesses, and I use that example often with many clients. So I would uh, I'd certainly encourage you to check that out. The other book you may want to check out is Adam Grant's book, Originals. He was on the podcast not too long ago talking about the book. One of the things that was really interesting to me from the conversation and the research that Grant has done and looking at entrepreneurs is that entrepreneurs are not the people we think they are. They're not the people who take crazy risks. They're not the people that leave their jobs and just jump right into things traditionally. Yes, there are people that that do that, 
But if you look at the actual data and the research, the people who actually are successful as entrepreneurs, who build sustainable companies, more often than not are very risk averse. They work in their jobs and do something uh, part-time for a while to make sure that it's working, to make sure that they've got their systems down. They often have several fallback options if things don't work out. So that traditional mindset we think about with entrepreneurship is sometimes not accurate. And I really found that book to be really interesting and this conversation to be really interesting around that. And I'd certainly encourage you to check that out if you haven't already, because I think that will just it'll encourage you to do what I've learned to be so important, which is to take small steps to get there. Then it's a very natural transition once the clients are there and you figured out a lot of the steps on making that next transition or that more formal transition to the business full-time. Thank you, Bonnie. As always, the notes are posted for everything we mentioned on the website at coachingforleaders.com slash episode number. Today's episode number is 252. That's the way to get there. You'll also get that for those of you who get the weekly leadership guide on Wednesdays. So watch for that in your email. And speaking of this week, if you are in the Chicago area on Thursday, July 7th in the evening, I would love to meet you. Go over to coachingforleaders.com slash Chicago is where you get all the information about that and look forward to seeing a bunch of you in person later this week. And finally, if you haven't already, as I mentioned a moment ago, I do send out the weekly leadership guide every Wednesday. It always has the show notes and all of the resources I've tracked down over the week that will help you to get better results from others in your reading, your listening, what you're watching online. I always am looking for things that will be helpful to you between the shows. So if that's of interest to you and getting the show notes each week in your inbox, go to coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe. And when you join, in addition to all of that, you will get access to my reader's guide listing the 10 leadership books that will help you get better results from others with brief summaries for me on the value of each one of those books. And we've had several of the authors of those books on the show in the past. Most recently, John Cotter's book, Leading Change. He was on the show just a few weeks ago. His book is a fabulous read for those of you who are looking for ways to navigate how to lead change in your organization, as well as his new book that we talked about. And that's just one of the nine that are there. It's a great start for your leadership development if you haven't done much reading recently. Again, coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe is the way to access that. Have a fabulous week. Have a great 4th of July holiday for those of us here in the States, and I'll see you next Monday. Take care.